This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone. Today I am chatting with Rachel Harrington. Rachel is a pediatric certified occupational therapy assistant who is dedicated to helping children with different abilities feel confident in their own skin. She began her sensory journey by designing fashionable, innovative weighted vests to give children the ability to regulate their sensory needs while fitting in with their peers. She lives in Boise, Idaho with her husband, young son and dog and can be found outside hiking, playing games and not taking life too seriously. Rachel is also the co-host of the All Things Sensory by Harkla podcast, which aims to educate and equip parents, therapists, and educators with the tools and information to understand sensory integration. She holds her autism certificate, as well as additional continuing education in handwriting without tears, primitive reflex integration, sensory integration, and more. Rachel shares tips, tricks, and strategies about sensory processing on her Instagram page to help parents and therapists better understand the sensory system. In today's episode, we talk about sensory challenges and how we can overcome them with our children. For more information on Rachel's podcast, membership club, and resources, check out the show notes. Here we go. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good afternoon, Rachel. Thanks for joining us today. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to chat more about all this good stuff today. I know, me too, because honestly, this is, I'm going to be honest, like I feel like I'm going to learn a lot today. This is not something that I frequently talk or learn about. So I'm going to be learning along with, you know, the people listening. So this is exciting. Good. Well, I'm a big nerd, so I'm going to just fill y'all in. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is going to be great. So I think it would be great to start off with, you know, obviously today we're talking about sensory processing. So what is sensory processing and, you know, why is it important? Yes. So sensory processing, it's kind of a, kind of an it word right now. I feel like it's really growing in popularity, but when we break it down and talk about really what sensory integration is, it refers to the nervous system and how it receives messages from the senses. And then it turns them into appropriate motor and behavioral responses. So everything from riding into a sandwich or riding a bike, reading, throwing a football, that all requires accurate processing of your sensory environment. So what are, when we're talking about kids and children, obviously that's what you specialize in. What can some of these sensory processing challenges look like? Okay. Well, you have eight different sensory systems 
And there are a different combination of what sensory processing challenges can look like, but generally we're going to see over-responsiveness and under-responsiveness, and then we're going to see sensory craving in all of those different senses. So for example, I'll talk about myself because I am very aware of my own sensory needs. I struggle with auditory processing. So if the TV is too loud, if the baby's crying, if someone's trying to talk to me, I struggle with filtering out all of that information and really listening in on what I actually need to hear. So that's just one example of the auditory system, but oftentimes we'll see kiddos who seek vestibular input. So these are the kiddos who get in trouble at school. They're on the go. They're jumping, they're spinning, they're rolling. They just don't stop moving because that's what their nervous system is telling them they need. Then we have kiddos you know, with tactile processing challenges, maybe they are uncomfortable by wearing different clothing textures, or they struggle with touching different textures and getting messy, or maybe they just are on the opposite side and they are under responsive and they want to touch all of the things are like a bull in a China shop. So it ranges so much, but that's kind of the basis of, of sensory processing challenges. Okay. So a few questions here. So if A child, like I'll give you an example. So my three-year-old boy, this particular year has been challenging because he is into one type of pant and it needs to be Mm -hmm. soft inside. And so I'll say, okay, this is your outfit. You know, like we'll kind of pick it out together and he'll put his hand inside and I'd be like, "Mm, nope. (laughs) You know, and meanwhile, meanwhile, I had gotten all these clothes for him, you know, thinking he's three, he'll just wear whatever. No, he'll only wear a certain pair of pants. And then of course now it's summer and he's like, no, I want my pants. And he's like very particular about his pants. Now, is this something that kids, you know, they almost just kind of like work through and then it's just a phase. I know my my 5-year-old had something a little bit similar, but you know, she, it only lasted for like 6 months or a year and then she was, you know, kind of over it. Do you see that with certain kids that it's something that stays with them and you have to work with or does is it sometimes just something that is more temporary? Yes, sometimes it's just a phase and sometimes it starts as, you know, not wanting to wear certain clothes and then sometimes it transitions into other tactile processing challenges. So maybe right mm-hmm. now he's he's particular about his clothes, he can control it, he feels comfortable wearing those soft pants, but then as he gets older, maybe it kind of transitions into not touching a certain type of food or he doesn't mm-hmm. want to get his hands messy. So Yes, it could be a phase. Maybe he'll just kind of move past it once he realizes that he's he's got the control, he can handle it, he can wear those certain pants. But as he gets older, maybe his body will realize that he actually is a little bit more sensitive to those different textures and it's going to change into a different, maybe a different challenge or a different phase as he grows. Yeah. Yeah. And then another thing I was thinking about when you were chatting is you know, you said you have some issues, you know, with auditory, you know, something being too Mm -hmm. loud. And, you know, it's funny because before I had kids, that stuff never bothered me. Just you wait. So, okay. (laughs) After four kids, I feel like I'm kind of losing my mind when the, the, the level of noise in my house reaches a certain decibel. I actually feel like I'm going crazy. Like that's me. And so legit me. Why does that happen? Is it hormones? What, I, think what it's a, I think it's a combination of, yes, your hormones are wacky, but your body goes through significant, you know, quote unquote trauma when you're pregnant and your your nervous system changes. It's, it's adapting and it's growing. 
And I wish that I had a concrete answer. I haven't found research to support it yet, but I've talked with enough moms and moms of sensory kiddos to realize that they probably had a little bit of sensory challenges before they get pregnant. And then after their body goes through such a big change that it's like, holy cow, what's going on? The same thing happened with me. I was a little sensitive to auditory input and now it's, it's even worse. But another thing that was interesting is I was very sensitive to vestibular input before I was pregnant. So I would get motion sickness from the time I was a kid. And now I can sit in the backseat of a car. I'm not as like uncomfortable with those movements. So I think it can go both ways depending on kind of what you were before getting pregnant and afterwards as well. Interesting. Yeah. Because I, so I've noticed the auditory thing and then I'm sure, you know, a lot of people listening will agree with the vestibular yes. issues. Mm-hmm. Like I go on a swing, I go on something that spins and I'm like, this is really uncomfortable. You like I feel, right. yeah. Oh my gosh. I spin around once and I'm dizzy for like 10 minutes. I'm like, but it won't stop. Interesting <laughs> is it's not even just dizziness. So often those adverse reactions are like aggression and anger. Like that's what used to happen to me. I was, I was doing a a vestibular training program and I had to be spun 10 times in each direction. And about an hour later, I was so angry and I'm not an angry person. Like my coworkers were like, girl, what is happening? You are struggling. So So I think that's really important to keep in mind when we're thinking about our kids as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. All right. So let's talk about infancy, what are some early warning signs of sensory processing in our infants? Yes. Okay. So it can start from just a colicky baby, a baby who is uncomfortable in their own skin. I always say that when, you know, you get a diagnosis of your baby has colic, there's an underlying reason as to why. I don't think that's always mm-hmm. the end diagnosis. So if they are clingy, if they don't tolerate movement, or if they only require movement to maybe go to sleep or to calm down, Maybe they're struggling to latch or they're struggling to, this is a little bit outside of infancy, but they're struggling significantly with solids and, you know, Mm -hmm. babies gag, babies vomit, you know, when they're introducing new foods, but if it's significant and I always say it's, it's a problem when it significantly impacts their ability to get through their day. So if Mm -hmm. they, the biggest thing is when these babies are just uncomfortable in their own skin and yeah. And they're not easily consoled. They don't want to be touched. They are uncomfortable by being held. And, and it's it's both sides of the spectrum. It's uncomfortable, but it's craving as well. So anything, mm-hmm. and I know it's hard being a first-time mom. I just had my first kiddo, and it's hard knowing like what's normal, what's not normal, even being in this in this field, but you don't know until you're a mom, but you just have to follow your gut. Yeah, our first was, I mean, so incredibly colicky, but looking back, I mean, she doesn't, she never really had any, I mean, no significant sensory processing issues, but I do think, you know what I think? I think honestly that it wasn't necessarily her. It was more me because I was a ball of like anxiety and tension. And we had so many issues with breastfeeding. She had to be on a billy blanket. Like it was so, it was such a stressful time. And I honestly think she was feeding off of my energy. Oh, I can want more than anything else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the other thing that I'm learning too so much, not only with my kiddo, but tongue ties and lip ties significantly impact these babies' ability to just function. And oh, I, yeah. you know, I didn't realize we had a tongue tie and I feel bad not catching it until, you know, month five. But you don't know that, you know, I mean, we had jaundice and I'm like, I had the perfect birth. I had the perfect pregnancy. Like, why does my child have jaundice? And Mm -hmm. to think of it, it's, he was struggling to get milk because he was tied, you know, and you can't get mad at yourself being a mom because you're literally doing the best that you can. But all of those, all of those challenges add up to down the road, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't just attribute it to sensory with my kiddo because I was doing all of the sensory activities that I would be doing for a kiddo I was treating and it yeah. wasn't resolving. So, you know, sensory is only one part of it. There's so many other things that uh, that you can really look into with these babes. Yeah. Okay. So when do you think, like, when is the most common time to, for, you know, a, a parent to kind of notice that their child might be having sensory issues? Like, do many parents notice more in infancy or is it as the kids kind of grow older that they're noticing this? It's usually as the kiddo grows older and hits kindergarten, because that's when the expectations are a lot harder on the kiddo. They're required to sit in class and focus and ride a bike and, and, tie their shoes. And when they aren't doing these things, parents are like, Oh, okay, let's, let's look into this. And teachers are like, Hey, let's get a little bit more, uh, a little bit more of an idea of what's going on. But Mm -hmm. when they look back, typically they'll say, Oh yes, my child skipped crawling. My child, you know, struggled to latch. Mm -hmm. My child had all of these different things kind of leading up to it. And then, then it's kind of the perfect storm at that point. Yeah. You kind of just put it all together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so let's just say, um, you know, a parent thinks that their child might be having these sensory issues. Uh, what can they do? Who do they go to? What are their first steps? Yes. So first step is talk to your pediatrician. And some pediatricians are on it. They know exactly what to look for. Some pediatricians, they're just, it's not their specialty. And so that's where it kind of takes the the parent's job of advocating for their child and say, let's, mm-hmm. let's rule it out. Let's just get an evaluation with an occupational therapist just to make sure we are in the clear. I always say, when in doubt, rule it out. You can always be safe just having that peace of mind. So chat with a pediatrician and then get a referral for an occupational therapist and do a little bit of research and find a therapist who really specializes in sensory processing challenges. You know, we're all, we all learn about it, but some therapists really just jive with that sensory system and they will, they'll make a huge difference in teaching you what to do outside of therapy. Now, the schools, do they have anything set up? So so if your child was in kindergarten or first grade or what have you, is there anything that they can, I mean, I know all schools are probably different, right? But mm-hmm. is there anything you can you know, go to the teacher and say, oh, you know, can my child be evaluated? I know they have like, right, they have like teacher evaluations yeah. and things like that. Is that something you would suggest or would you say just going the pediatrician route? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton of... I don't, I don't have a background in the school system, but what I would suggest is if there's a school counselor, a school psychologist, a school OT, chat with the teacher and see if you can get some testing in the school. And mm-hmm. if they say, yes, we can do it. Great. Get that done. And then take that to your pediatrician. If they don't do that in the school, then I would just go straight to your pediatrician and chat with them. Yeah. All right. So what are some of your favorite like sensory based activities that you know listeners could try with their kids. Okay, give me an age range. <laughs> All right, let's let's do like you know what can we do like 
zero to one and then one to three? Like, would that be a good? Yes. Or is that two? Okay. So let's, let's start off with zero to one. Yes. So zero to one, you're getting inside the baby's mouth as early as possible. So if you have your fingers, you're just getting in their mouth, touching their cheeks and their gums and kind of getting their tongue to move around. I love introducing vibration. So Arc Therapeutic has a Z-Vibe tool that I love. And I'll just very briefly introduce that in infancy. I'll use it to prep feeding solids. I'll hand it to my little guys to to kind of just touch and feel and get in their mouth on their own. So getting inside the mouth is very, very helpful for these babies. And then tummy time activities. I love tummy time activities. I know that it's a big hype these days, but there's a reason for it. So anytime you can set up a novel activity, I'm a big proponent of like find something novel around your house, whether it's a whisk or a Ziploc bag full of Orbeez, tape it to the floor, let your child explore it, get on the floor with them, smile, stick your tongue out, put a mirror in front of them. So kind of tummy time activities there. When you think about movement, you're going to try to get your kiddo as much novel movement as possible. So if you have a therapy ball, I love going on tummy time over the therapy ball, laying over your back on the therapy ball and kind of rocking babe back and forth, side to side. Once they have a little bit more neck control, about you know four or five months, you can sit them on the ball, holding them and bouncing them a little bit. But you're just really trying to get as much of that novel input as possible. When you're starting solids, let your kiddo get messy. It's so hard for us sometimes, but it will make such a big difference going forward with their tactile system. Let them feed themselves, preload a spoon, let them, you know, miss their mouth and bring it to their mouth and, and uh, get as messy as possible. And so those kind of activities go as, as we're growing. Just want to make sure we're not skipping those milestones. We're working on the good quad crawling. Uh, my little guy had a, he started with an army crawl. He moved to a triped crawl, kind of had one leg out and we just worked and worked and worked. And now he's crawling on all fours. And you just know that when they're crawling like this, they're getting so much great feedback, working on a ton of skills. So those milestones are actually great sensory activities in and of themselves. So Okay. That's kind of like brief nutshell for the zero to one. Yeah. You know, if your child, let's just say your child's not exposed to much sensory activities when they're younger, does that predispose them to having these issues later on? No, I don't think so. I think in some, in some cases, environmental factors do play a part, but not always. If you're, if you didn't do sensory stuff with your kiddos, you probably did without knowing it, but yeah, you're not going to you're not going to you know expose your child to these challenges but just know that maybe if if you shield your child from the blender or the vacuum or you never vacuum or make a smoothie around your kiddo it might take longer for them to process that information as they're older so they might be a little bit more hesitant and it might take a little bit longer to get them used to those different sensations so that's why i always like to recommend incorporating it and making it a positive experience from the start. But no, I don't think that it's it's necessarily going to cause sensory processing challenges if you don't do or if you didn't do these activities. How do you feel about noisemakers like at night 
for sleep? Yeah, I'm all for them. I think they're fine. I don't see an issue with them. We use one. I think if it's something that your baby like requires and will not sleep without it, I think then we might want to look at modifying it a little bit. I just don't like crutches for kiddos and I like them to be able to modulate the input regardless Mm -hmm. of their environment. So yeah, I don't have an issue with them. Okay. What about the next age range? So I don't know, is one to three okay? Or is that too big of an age range? Okay. So for older kiddos, one to three, my biggest thing is setting up obstacle courses. So setting up a functional task where we have um, like an activity on one side, maybe we have puzzle pieces on one side, and then we have some gross motor components going through a tunnel, doing a somersault, climbing up on a couch or on a beanbag chair, and then putting the puzzle pieces in one at a time. So those simple obstacle courses are great for this age, and it works on tons of skills, and it's just one activity. You can kind of sit back and watch your kiddo rock and roll after you show them what to do a couple of times, and then you can have them set up the obstacle course as well. So once they kind of get the hang of what it looks like, you can ask them, how should we make our next obstacle course? What can we use to make a tunnel? What do you want to jump on? You can kind of go through the motions like that, giving them the independence. Because we do, we want to push that independent play at that age. But I would say obstacle courses, hands down, are my favorite things to do for that one to three-year-old. Actually, for all ages. <laughs> Not yeah, even yeah I mean, you really can. Yeah. 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 And so do you primarily work with like younger kiddos? Like what's the age range that you typically work with? No, when I'm treating, I actually didn't have a ton of experience with the younger kiddos just in the clinic based setting. It was generally around three to 21. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So I, in the clinic, I loved working with older kiddos. And now that I'm in, I'm in the thick of it with my kiddo. I love babies. I love working on those skills with babies. And so I'm kind of like navigating my business towards helping new moms because I'm finding that that Mm -hmm. is such a needed area. So now you have me thinking. So (laughs) as the kiddos grow older, let's just say like, you know, kindergarten age, first grade age, what can we be doing with that age range when it comes to, you know, sensory processing and things like that? Yes. I would say getting outside would be the biggest thing that you can do, getting outside, being barefoot, riding bikes, climbing trees, you know, just thinking about like what our ancestors did. Like, what did we do Mm -hmm. 50 years ago? What were kids doing? And we weren't sitting on screens. We weren't inside all day. We were outside. Preach it, girl. (laughs) Playing. You know how I feel about this. This is like, yes. Yes. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. And it's so simple. It sounds so goofy to just say that, but simplicity is the highest form of elegance. And our kids are going to integrate their reflexes. They're going to integrate that sensory processing by being outside and being with nature and just getting grounded and, and letting them make mistakes and learn through being messy and making mud pies. And you can, you can make all the fun Pinterest, beautiful activities you can, and they're fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't have to be that complicated and that beautiful. Mm -hmm. It gets, it should be messy. It should be challenging. So 
Let's just say someone's kiddo was diagnosed with a sensory processing disorder. Now, does this mean they have it for life? It's something you have to work on, you know, every following year, or is it something they can potentially grow out of as they grow older? Yeah. So I like to say we teach our kiddos, we teach our adults to grow into it. You know, if you're, if you're diagnosed with a sensory processing disorder, then you're going to have to make some modifications, some adaptations to your environment. You're going to, I would say, put your sensory goggles on and you're going to have to view the world with, with those sensory goggles on and realize that when your kids are loud and, and screaming and you are getting triggered, you know, recognizing that that's a sensory component. You're not just getting mm-hmm. mad, you're not a bad parent with a kiddo who is screaming because the TV is too loud or screaming because they got messy, you know, working through it and empathizing with them and, and teaching modifications. So it'll take longer for these kiddos to learn, but I think that the more that we can communicate with them, that there's nothing wrong, their brain just works a little bit differently. And it's just wired a little bit more uniquely Then we can teach them that they have superpowers and they're going to grow into it. But it definitely is going to be a lifelong challenge, but it will change as the child grows. Like, you know, we changed when we had pregnancies and puberty is a big one that you know, you're, you're going to get your kiddo sensory system figured out and then they're going to hit puberty and then everything's going to go haywire and you're going to realize what yeah. the heck is going on. So it definitely <laughs> adapts as the child grows, but with modifications and therapy and some changes to the environment, I think that kids will learn to definitely grow into it. Yeah. Does it typically run in the family? Have you, have you seen that with the people that you've treated? Yes. So often I'll be working with a kiddo and we'll be talking about these, you know, I'll give them a sensory checklist to go over and the parent will come back to me and say, whoa, I've got a lot of these. Oh, my husband (laughs) and my wife, they have a lot of these as well. And, and they'll start to connect the dots. And and the goal is, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all well-modulated people and we're functioning adults, but you know, as kids, they probably realize that, wow, I struggled with a lot of these things. And I think it definitely gets um, a little bit more intense with mm-hmm. like, if you have a kiddo with it and it's, it's more of that genetic pathway, just with everything that we have in our lives these days and everything we don't have in our lives these days. So I think definitely genetics, definitely environmental trauma is definitely a big component of it. So kind of get mm-hmm. that perfect storm. Yeah. Yeah. So have you noticed that, you know, sensory processing disorder is typically related to maybe other disorders as well or other diagnoses? Or can it just be a standalone thing? Both. Yes. It can definitely be a standalone thing. Often it gets misdiagnosed, but we will see it's autism, ADHD, I think, and sensory processing challenges can kind of go hand in hand. Sometimes a child will get diagnosed with ADHD, but maybe it's truly just a sensory challenge we need to get worked out. And with anxiety, I think a lot of sensory challenges can cause anxiety and it will look like anxiety, but maybe the true root is some primitive reflexes, possibly some sensory components as well as well as other diagnoses, but I see it definitely going hand in hand, but oftentimes it is just a standalone diagnosis too. And I say diagnosis, but it isn't an actual recognized diagnosis. 
more of like a classification. Okay. So sorry, I'm just texting my husband because I can hear <laughs> I can hear the baby down there and I'm like, can you just get <laughs> You know, this, this podcast is going to have everything in it, you know, a little bit of oh, dogs, yes. a little bit of babies, a little bit, you know, yes, I, I mean, know. <laughs> life as parents. Okay. So what is the ultimate goal of therapy when you're treating somebody with a sensory processing disorder? Yeah. So always trying to explain and get the child to understand what the sensory system is, what they're processing, how it feels, how they can modify their environment, how they can get input differently in a more expected or more appropriate way. So if a kiddo is you know, saying they have to jump up and down in the middle of the class. And how can we teach them that, yes, your body does tell you that, but what can we do differently in a more expected way? What's more socially expected? So teaching them that independence, if it's possible to advocate for themselves and, uh, and just to have those tools in their back pocket, you know, Hey, I need a sensory diet. My body's feeling a little bit wiggly, you know, can I, can I go outside and jump on the trampoline for five minutes and then come back in and do my homework? So that's the ultimate goal with therapy for kiddos, for adults, just, just teaching them what they need and why they need it. Yeah. All right. So is there anything in the first section of this that you would want to add on to before we go into the community questions? No, I think we covered them all. Yeah. I mean, there's some good questions too. I think that will help to tie some things in too. Yeah, totally. No, let's jump into some questions. Throw me on the spot. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this isn't one of the questions here. Well, I mean, there were so many for you, honestly, but okay. I have a question for you because I do have a few friends that struggle with this with their own children. And I'm sure there are many people listening that have the same issue. So you have a child who, like you said, is one of those kids that really loves to fidget and move and jump and, and do all these things. Like that's just what their body wants them to do. Mm-hmm. What are some activities that would be good for them that would help them to maybe, you know, be able to concentrate a little bit more at school, being able to sit in that chair when they are at school? Like what are some things that you would suggest for somebody like that? Yes. Perfect. Okay. So the biggest thing with these kiddos is we have to meet their threshold of sensory input first. So they're moving, they're grooving, they're jumping, they're diving. Their body is telling you that they need more input in order to feel calm and regulated like you and I feel now. So we need to, we need to hit them hard with that input that they're seeking. And so maybe they're, they're jumping and crashing and we're going to set a boundary and we're going to say, we're going to jump 10 times off the couch and jump onto a beanbag chair. We're going to do that 10 times. And then we're going to do five wall push-ups, something like that. So we're going to give them that input that they need. And then we're going to sandwich it with that proprioceptive input, which is very calming and organizing to the nervous system. So think heavy work activities and pushing and pulling and compression. So meet their threshold, give them that input they're seeking Give them a trampoline, jumping, somersaults, rolling, spinning. So think of head position changes. That is mm-hmm. that vestibular input they're likely seeking. And then calm them back down, bring them back down with the slower, big body movements, the compression, the massage, the steamrollers, the 
slow bear crawling, and then we're going to ask them to sit at the table. So if you have a kiddo who struggles at mealtime and they won't stay in their chair, try some of these activities before mealtimes and after Mm. mealtimes and see how, see how they do sitting at the table. I'm going to go on the, I'm going to bring my three-year-old son on like the tire swing and spin him around a hundred times before dinner time. Yes, (laughs) but you got to follow that heavy work. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So funny. But no, I was reading recently and I had mentioned it on my stories that I think it's like the research says two minutes of spinning or something helps kids concentrate for like, I don't know, 15 minutes or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. Like I've never, I've never heard that before. And I was like- vestibular input has a long amount of like results basically. So if you spin a little bit, it'll have long lasting results. That's why it's good. But for our kiddos who are over responsive and like overstimulated by it, it's even less. And they're going to have a Mm. lot of, of those reactions. Yeah. I mean, once I found that out, I would, I always had like, 20 to 30 minutes in between dropping off, you know, my kids to one place and then my oldest to her school. Mm-hmm. And so we would go to the playground. I was like, okay, we're going on the spinny thing. Let's go. And we would just spin for like 10 minutes a day. And I mean, who knows if it, if it, you know, had any effect. I wasn't at school with her, but I was like, yeah. the research supports this. <laughs> it's good for <them>, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I know you said like not every child is going to react that way with this, right? Like, yes. How would you be able to tell if this wasn't working for your child? Is it if they just kind of melt down or like, what are you looking for um, as far as like a response? If you, if this is not something you should try. Yeah. So if a kiddo is over responsive, that means they are like really sensitive to this vestibular input. So some adverse mm-hmm. reactions we can see is they might be extremely fearful. If their feet leave the ground, they're going to be mm-hmm. super uncomfortable being tossed in the air as babies. But, you know, if they're having an adverse reaction to something like going to the park and spinning, it's going to be severe dizziness, nausea, sometimes vomiting, that aggression, anger, things like that. Those like visceral responses is what we're going to see when a kid struggles. Yeah. All right. So we kind of already talked about this, but let's just talk about now you said the most common age is usually when they're entering school and then you'll hear, you know, maybe even from the teacher, like, you know, they're having Mm -hmm. trouble concentrating or what have you. What are some of the signs at that age when they first start school? Like other than, you know, the fidgeting in their, Mm -hmm. in their seat, what are some other things to look out for? Yeah. So in in kindergarten, we'll see kiddos struggle with handwriting and maybe they struggle to hold their pencil the right way, or they'll struggle with force modulation and they're scribbling and they can't color in the lines. They're pushing so hard. They can't quite grasp how to hold scissors and cut and hold the paper in one hand and cut in the other hand. They might struggle. They might actually fall out of their chair. We hear this often that kiddos will fall out of their chair because they don't have that body awareness to know how to sit up straight and maintain that upright postural position. We'll see kiddos who are talking too loud and they don't realize that they're talking too loud. We'll see kiddos who maybe are uncomfortable by all of the noises and they are smart kiddos, but maybe they can't focus at school because of all the background noise like me, you know, I can't tune out all the background noise, but we'll see that oftentimes as well. You know, maybe kiddos are getting in trouble significantly because they just won't stop moving. That's That could be a sign too that they're just needing more input. Oh, this is a good question, especially considering what we talked about earlier. So 
How do you handle when your kids' sensory needs are the exact opposite of yours? Oh my gosh, this is very hard. <laughs> and this is hard. This is very hard. So typically we'll have a parent who's more over-responsive and the kiddos are under-responsive. So definitely clashing. And this happens with siblings mm-hmm. as well. It's really tricky. So I think first thing is recognizing what the sensory like triggers are. So realizing that auditory is a trigger or, you know, tactile input messy is, is a, is a trigger for, for mom or dad. And oh my gosh, tell me about it. I try to get over it all the time. And I don't, what is that though? Is that just because I grew up in a really clean house? <laughs> what is it? Why is it so triggering? I, I think it's because maybe you're not used to it, you know? And <sighs> it drives me bonkers. We have this sense of control. We want it to be clean. We want it to be organized. We want it to be nice and neat. But we have to remember kids learn through messy play mistakes and and they're going to thrive when we relinquish the control. They will. Yeah. And the biggest thing is to teach the kiddos to clean up after themselves. Set that expectation. Mm -hmm. Set that boundary that you can get as messy as you want. I love it. I'm going to support you, but you bet your butt, you better clean it up when you're done. And this starts from a young age and, and, you know, just talking with them and saying, you know, it makes mom feel really uncomfortable and, you know, makes my heart beat really fast when, you know, there's bananas all over the floor, right? You can attach it to a feeling kiddos are going to, or they're going to connect with that a little bit more rather than us saying, no, clean up, no, do this, no, do that. Don't do this. If we sit down and say, look, I feel really uncomfortable. I feel really upset. You know, how does it make you feel when I do X, Y, and Z? Um, so just mm-hmm. sitting down and being open and honest with them and connecting it with a feeling they're going to, they're going to connect with that a little bit more. Yeah, Totally. Is this, so this question came up a lot. Is this something that's like just sensory processing disorders in general? Is it something that's becoming more common? And is that just because it's being recognized, you know, earlier and we know what to look for as opposed to before? Or what do you think is this like uptick in the cases as far as, you know, the disorders go? Yeah, I think both. It's definitely more recognized. People are more aware of it thanks to the internet. But I also think that we're diagnosing it more and we're recognizing it more. So, you know, my parents, you know, they have their own sensory needs, but it wasn't ever talked about. And it was just, you're going to, you're going to just wear beige and be quiet, right? Like that, that's all that they can do. But now we're, we're really focused on empowering these kiddos and listening to what they need and what they don't need. And we're letting them kind of explore a little bit more. And I think that we're seeing Mm -hmm. it more often, but I think that it definitely, as it's passed down through genetics, I think that it's, it intensifies a little bit more. So, you know, if, if my dad struggled with, you know, some auditory processing challenges, it's definitely going to be a little bit more intense in me. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. I wish I had a better answer. Yeah. So this is a a very specific question. So Lauren wants to know how to help her child who is seven is still chewing everything. Um, She said she's getting, she's getting tested this summer, you know, for all the different things, but she wants to know how to help her child. Is this something that's rather common in things that you see or what's that about? 
Yes. So it actually is very common. It's a common question that we get. We actually just recorded a podcast about oral seeking and it'll launch at the end of June. So definitely listen to that episode because it's going to have a ton of tips and things that you can do. But generally it means that your kiddo is seeking more input and they're trying to get enough input to focus and attend and kind of have that appropriate adaptive response. My niece does the same thing. Her dad does the same thing. So if we can provide more input throughout the day, the goal is that we will see less of the shirt chewing and the hair chewing. So interesting. Yeah. I always recommend sour spray is a great, easy way to start. Chewy foods, crunchy foods, cold foods. You know, if you want to offer a like a chewy necklace or a chewy like pencil top, something that's so this is like if you see them chewing mm-hmm. the saying, okay, like let's chew on this instead, type of thing. I would say first talk to them about what they feel and if they okay. know it. Uh, so bring it to their attention if they're like, Oh my gosh, I need I need to chew on something in order to feel calm, then you can mm-hmm. say, Okay, let's find some things that you can chew on that are safe. Uh, so you can feel calm if they're safe to yeah. have chewing gum. I I am a chewing gum fanatic. I seek that proprioceptive input, like it's going out of style. So is my husband. Uh huh. My husband's the same way. Constantly, yeah. I'm like, and we'll be working out. He's like, you want a piece of gum? I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Does he grind his teeth too? So he typically doesn't. Like I'm actually, I never did either until I had kids, and it's a disaster yeah. now. But. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, occasionally nights he'll wake up and he's like, Oh, I felt like I was really like clenching and grinding last night, but typically no, but he is like, you know, like when he was younger, had ADHD and like a lot of issues concentrating. And like, for example, like, yeah, one of those people, like when he's, I remember, I'll never forget this. Like he was studying in med school and he would just like, he'd be like head down in a book, but he would be hitting his forehead with the palm of his hand, like over and over and over and over again. Like, no, like constant. And I was like, are you okay? And he's like, what? And I'm like, you're hitting yourself in the head like multiple times over and over. And he's like, what? I'm just concentrating. And I'm like, how is that? How are you able to concentrate? Wow. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's just like things like that. And, you know, it's so funny, like what works for certain people. And this question, I didn't even think about this question until this person asked it. And our five-year-old is very much like that. And I think like him in many ways, because she'll even take up, like she'll rip up a piece of paper and like a little small piece of it and then like roll it into a ball and just chew on it. And I'm like, so there's little spitballs all over her room, like no joke. And I'm like, what are we doing here? I was just like, why, what is happening? Like, is, does she need, I like, I don't know, is this some weird like deficiency in nutrients or something? <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. Like, what is what is paper chewing? I don't know. That's but, yeah. common. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a super interesting one. Yeah. Okay. So, let's see here, we kind of already talked about that. How can sensory input help during a tantrum? Okay. So, kind of a big thing on the internet right now is. Is it sensory? Is it behavior? Is it a meltdown or is it a tantrum? And the biggest thing to keep in mind is if your kiddo is having like a true sensory meltdown, if you give them what they want or what they need or what they're asking for, the meltdown won't stop. It won't stop 
that that simple, here's the candy bar, be quiet. You know, like <laughs> it won't stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if it's a tantrum, then you give them the candy bar and they're going to be fine. The thing is when a kiddo is having a meltdown, they're overwhelmed, their body is telling you, I'm in shutdown mode. I need help. Find a cozy corner. I like to make these in kiddos rooms or in like a Harry Potter closet. Uh, I have an Instagram reel. I'll send you after this, but it's just incorporating a bunch of different calming sensory input before the child has a meltdown. You know, you pick it all out. You have a little box, you have a treasure, like a little space for it, tent, a beanbag, a quiet corner, wherever you have available Mm -hmm and Mm -hmm. guide the child when they're having a meltdown to this space without any words. You're not asking them. You're maybe holding up a hand, gesturing. You're letting them know that you're here when they're ready to talk, but just very, very minimal sensory input that you are personally offering them and you're just letting them guide it and deep breathing and they have that sensory escape. That's really helpful. Yeah, no, I like that. All right, let's see here. Indoor sensory activities that a four and two-year-old could do together. Mm, Anything with your body. Jumping jacks, crawling, um, wall push-ups, obstacle courses are easy peasy for two and four-year-olds like we chatted about. Just think about moving your body in new ways. Crawling backwards, that's a different way going down the stairs, like bump, 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 rolling, somersaulting, climbing. Well, I guess it's indoor. You can't climb trees inside. (laughs) Well, some people have those like climbing walls inside their playroom. You know, it's actually a really simple DIY. If you have like higher ceilings, like people have done that and put like tumbling mats underneath, right? Isn't that kind of a good idea? Yeah, I have cool. swing hooks in my house. Um, we have like a bonus room upstairs. So I have three <laughs> swing hooks up there. Um, yeah. Bean bags, gymnastic mats, um, you know, climbing climbing rocks, uh, those pickler, what are they called? The pickler, pi- pickler pikes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like the little climbing tower things or? Yeah, what? yeah they're like wooden, yeah. you know. Yeah, art. yeah, yeah. Those wobble yeah. boards are fun too indoor swings like you know what we just got recently uh, so after like this whole spinning thing i got online it's like this i think it's uh, what brand is it i don't know i'll look and i'll link it in the show notes but it's just this like thing that you sit on and you spin yourself around like again yeah. and again and again and again and again and it was like i don't know 15 or 20 bucks and like my kids constantly inside using it like i'll just be like cooking dinner and they're like i need to go back on that and they'll just be spinning your, themselves around even my almost 8 year old fits on it like she'll yeah. do it do you have a spot in your house where you could hang a swing? So, you know, what's funny. We used to have like a hanging bassinet swing that I used to like the babies used to nap in like, like yeah. this was years ago um, when my kids were younger, but you know, our ceilings are super low. I guess it doesn't really matter, but we could probably put one in the playroom, but it's like, you have to have a lot of space. If you want to try it. Because they have yeah. these hooks on them and you can spin like crazy. They provide a lot of proprioceptive input. So it's that calming, but alerting input. So I'll send you a swing if you want. You can no, try. Yeah, send it to me because you know what else that, that now that you mention it, we were at an Airbnb recently and we went and took a little trip up upstate New York and 
the house had two swings, you know, those like cozy swings that you can turn around in. They had two of those and they had a hammock in the bedroom. The kids were playing in the hammock for like two and a half hours, like just like playing in it, swinging in it, like taking turns, like doing, and they like loved it. And I'm like, I kind of want a hammock in my house now. Like (laughs) that's where I'm at with it because they loved it so much. It's amazing. And it just provides so much natural input and these kiddos can go wild in it. It's yeah. so Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah, wow. so you'll have to send me the link to whichever ones you like think are are great. I'll send you one. You can just try out. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good you to me. just try it out. I know. They're, yeah. They will change your life. I swear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll send you one afterwards. Uh, send me your address and okay. I'll send one in the mail. Okay. All right. And I'll let you guys know how it is. Okay. Let's see here. Just a few more. So is leaving music on all day overstimulating? I guess this would probably would depend on the child, right? I mean, definitely more than anything. I think that it depends on the type of music. You know, if it's classical music, that's a little bit less overstimulating, but I would say alternate between, you know, some classical music, even turning the music off sometimes and just talking with your kiddos, but it's definitely not going to be overstimulating unless it's that child's specific sensory preference. So it depends. That one's that one I can't answer specifically. Yeah. All right. Last one here. And then we can dive into these last two questions I usually ask everybody. So this one is how to help her child who's three that is unable to calm his body after high sensory situations. I know this is a very common one too. Mm-hmm. So your child was just exposed to, you know, some high sensory situation, whether it was like a birthday party or what have you. How do you help calm your child down afterwards? Yes. Yeah, so the biggest thing is, but first heavy work, right? So whenever you're going to leave a party, go to a party before and after, try implementing more heavy work activities. If you can if you can stop by the park on the way to the birthday party and on the way home and the child can hang from the monkey bars and climb up the rock wall and get some input that way, that will be really helpful. Even just changing the sensory environment to making the lights dim or turning on some soft music or turning off the music or putting headphones on. That's another big one to try. But just alternating between that proprioceptive input, calming auditory input, slowing down, deep breathing. Sometimes these kids just go into that fight or flight state when they're at those birthday parties. I know I do. They're overwhelming for me as well. Just bringing it back down, always trying to do heavy work. One thing you can teach your kiddo is to push their tongue to the roof of their mouth. Pushing their tongue to the roof of their mouth, like taking your hands and putting them on top of your head and kind of pushing down, jumping up and down. That offers a lot of calming proprioceptive input. You don't Mm. need it, which is nice. What do you think about these? And this is just me asking another question. What do you think about those like fidgety toys that you can get? Like there's like a million of different ones on Amazon. Yes. I think there's a time and a place. Definitely. If it's a true sensory need and it's very calming for the kiddo, then definitely try it out. But you know, sometimes kids just want to play with them and that's fine too. I'm a big fidgeter. 
I'll have like bracelets on my wrists. I have like a, mm-hmm. one of those Kalos, one of those rubber rings and I'll take that off and fidget. So for a kiddo who loves it to play with it, that's great. But there are also kiddos who need to fidget, but they are nervous about standing out at school. So finding mm-hmm. fidgets that maybe don't stand out are more undercover. That's helpful for a lot of kiddos who are very aware of their sensory needs, but I think they're fun. I think they're fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I have two questions for you that I ask all my interviewees. So the first one is, it can be unrelated to what we talked about today. What is one thing that you would recommend to moms? Just generally one piece of advice. I would say after being a mom myself, this has definitely changed. I would say observe instead of compare with the time and place that we are with social media and the internet and all the world wide web, it's so easy to see someone share what, you know, what their nine month old is doing. And then you question, you're like, mm-hmm. well, why is my month, my, my nine month old doing that? Or they skipped that or they did, they didn't do that. And I think that if we can observe that and say, cool, instead mm-hmm. of, because, you know, 10 years down the road, who cares if, if this kid clapped at eight months and this kid clapped at zero, you know, it really doesn't matter as long as your kiddo is hitting those milestones. Just observe everything instead of trying to compare yourself to yeah. all of those things. So that's, yeah, I think that's, that's so that's important. That's thing that I work on and I try to get everyone that, uh, that hangs out in my community to realize as well. Yeah. All right. Last question is if you could make one meal for your whole family that everybody would eat, what would it be? That's rather quick and easy too. Nothing that's going to take, you know, an hour. I I don't cook. I bake. So Okay. So let's do bake. I would let's say, do, uh, let's would do bake because I, I yeah. wouldn't know what to say for cooking. <laughs> You're like, I don't even know. <laughs> oh, All right. What are you baking? If I had to bake, okay. There's this recipe. It, it's this, I, I can't say the name because it has some profanity in it, but it's like a peanut butter, chocolate, Rice Krispie treat, like the Rice Krispies and chocolate, Rice Krispies and peanut butter on the bottom, mm-hmm. melted together. And then you have like a layer of chocolate and peanut butter on the top. Oh my gosh. My husband would die for this. Oh my gosh. They're so good. I make them everywhere I go. <laughs> oh, you have to send me the recipe for that. I will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been so awesome talking with you, Rachel. I hope that this was helpful for everybody listening and I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you, my dear. Thanks for having me on. It was super fun. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.